Al Kendall. Welcome to another edition of Album Sides, where I put together a collection of songs that are connected in some way. It would make up a terrific side of a vinyl record if anybody had ever been cool enough to put them together and release it as such. Won't you please let me be your K-Tell man? Today is July 12th, 2021, for those of you in the future listening. Uh, and this is a, a very significant day in music history. Uh, it was July 12th, 1979. Um, it wasn't the same as the day the music died, because it wasn't really beloved music that died on that day. It was disco music. And there were a lot of people who celebrated its demise. Um and here's how it happened. It was it, it's known as Disco Demolition Night. It's a huge deal at the time. Apparently, I was eight. What did I know? Um, but back then, uh, on July twelfth, nineteen seventy nine, the Detroit Tigers were playing the Chicago White Sox in a doubleheader at Comiskey Park. The Sox apparently were not having a very good year, and they were trying to beef up attendance. Right? Nobody wants to go see a, a losing team so much. And uh, so, so there's often, you know how it is, it's bobblehead night and things. I don't think they had invented the bobblehead back then, but, but you know, they always have these promotional nights uh, to beef up attendance and everything. And so this night, uh, they chose a local DJ named Steve Dahl to help them come up with an idea. Well, he, like many rockers and like many DJs, hated disco music. He was on a crusade of sorts. And he came up with the idea to just blow the records up, right? And uh, so here here was the deal. You got in for 98 cents. I guess the radio station was 98 point something. I don't know. Anyway, so admission was 98 cents uh, if you brought a disco album to be blown up. Or maybe, maybe a single too. I don't know. Anyway, so disco records were going to be blown up between the two games of the doubleheader, right? Brilliant idea. Brilliant idea. Because, I mean, what else are you going to do during that downtime while the, while the players are resting, you know? So, uh, so he's going to be some big explosion and all this other stuff, right? Well, they packed the stadium beyond expectations and possibly even beyond uh, uh, capacity. Uh, there were, there, people were sneaking in and all this other stuff. So who knows how many people ended up being there. Uh, however, a lot of the records were not collected by... Uh, the folks at the park, so or whoever the radio station people, whoever it was, so people were up in the stands with their records and start flinging them out onto the field. I, I think it was between the games. I don't think it was during any games or whatever, but they're throwing them like freaking frisbees and everything out on the field. Uh, so they gather them up. They there's the big explosion. Fans storm the field and won't leave <laughs> until they got the riot police out there. Uh, to to uh, to clear the field and clear the stadium and everything like that, right? So uh, so they obviously have to postpone game two uh, to the next day, and then you know the baseball commissioner or somebody uh, or the president of American League, somebody like that, uh, cancels the second game, and the White Sox have to forfeit it uh, for basically ruining uh, the entire evening. Or, you know, I don't know. The, was the evening ruined? Were the White Sox going to lose anyway? Probably. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but it certainly was a, a, a day that uh, will go into infamy or, or fummy. Infamy is a bad thing. Maybe it's fummy if you're not a disco fan. I like a little bit of disco. Um, 
And especially at the time. I mean, we didn't know any better. We didn't know any different, right? Uh, I'll never forget uh, on uh, Halger Boulevard here uh, where I live, uh, is uh, there was a, a building, an old abandoned building. I think it was abandoned at the time anyway with graffiti on it. Uh, and I'll never forget one wall said Devo, which made me love the place. And the other one said Disco Sucks. Those were the two pieces of graffiti those people decided that they were going to contribute. Anyway, it was interesting. So here's the deal. A lot of you have tuned in to find out the answers to some trivia questions that I've been asking on Al Kindle's album sides. Um, and you can always check us out, by the way, on Facebook. Follow our Facebook page, Al Kindle's Album Sides, Al-Bum Sides. Um, and again, uh, keep in mind, we're, we're putting together a playlist. It's something that would be an amazing side of, a, of vinyl. If, you know, if it were a KTEL album, this would sell millions of copies. It would be amazing. Um, and, uh, and, but there's always going to be a bit of trivia uh, involved with the songs. And now these are all going to be disco, of course. Um, and I'll be putting together a playlist on Spotify and possibly YouTube uh, where you can go back, check out the podcast, listen to the songs if you want to, uh, things like that. It makes up a fun playlist. I got to tell you, this stuff does. But the, the title of it is Disco Not Disco. All right? Disco because it's disco, but not disco because we don't want it to be disco. <laughs> so question number one. You'll see how this ties in here in a second. Question number one. Who was the last member of the Beatles to have a number one record? Okay. Um, or to have their first number one record anyway. You know what I'm saying? So uh, uh, not just the last one to hit number one. Oh, yeah, No, probably wasn't that. The last member of the Beatles to finally hit number one as a solo artist. Okay. It's basically a multiple choice question, right? You know, you got John, Paul, George, or Ringo. So, uh, George was actually, I believe, the first. Actually, let me look at my picture. Uh, in case you didn't see the post, uh, the post actually was a bit of a hint. I posted the album cover for Abbey Road, and believe it or not, the answer lies within the album cover itself. Now, not if you follow them in line as far as who's first in line, but if you're looking from left to right, the first person you see is George. George had the first number one, my sweet Lord. Second, you see Paul with no shoes or socks, as we all famously know. Uh, he was the second to hit number one. Ringo was third. And John Lennon often you know, seen as the greatest of the songwriters, certainly not the most successful. Paul McCartney was the most successful songwriter of them. Uh, but John, you know, highly respected all that stuff, was the last to finally hit number one. Now, maybe that was a badge of honor, right? I mean, Paul was Mr. Commercial, you know, Mr. Hit Song Guy. John wasn't looking for hit songs or anything like that, and the label was the one who, who chose to release things as singles. So, of course, maybe they're worried. I mean, John hasn't hit number one yet. So they insisted that they release off of the Walls and Bridges album, 1974, We're Going to Release Whatever Gets You Through the Night as a single. John hated the song. He hated the idea. Uh, even though, I mean, he did, uh, you know, he did write the song and performed it with his buddy, um, uh, Elton John, um, he um, 
you know, still just didn't like the way it came out or anything like that. Elton, though, told him, look, if you release this, it's going to number one. Elton already had a couple of number ones in the United States. He's like, this is going to be a number one song. He's like, there's no way. So they have a bet. If the song goes to number one, John agreed to go on stage at one of Elton's concerts and perform with him. At this point, John wasn't performing live and had quit touring. Um, Lo and behold, uh, the song hits number one. And um, so Lennon went to uh, Elton John's Thanksgiving performance at Madison Square Garden, uh, November 28, 1974. It turned out to be John Lennon's last major concert appearance. Sad but true. But thank God for Disco for getting him to number one finally. And of course, the songs that he released um, around the time of his death, uh, starting over, and I think Woman, both went to number one, pretty sure. Um, <clears throat> moving right along, question number two was, what was David Bowie's first of only two songs to hit number one in the United States? So David Bowie, the biggest recording artist of all time, only hit number one twice in the United States. All those great songs, um, you know, Changes, um, Ziggy Stardust, Diamond Dogs, uh, you know, you name it. None of it went to number one. Now, the second one was Let's Dance, 1983. We, you know, most of us, my age anyway, remember that being a huge song, right? It did go to number one. Um, but, uh, uh, it ended up being his first number one was Fame, which coincidentally featured John Lennon, or was co-written with John Lennon, and featured him on backing vocals and maybe some rhythm guitar, I can't remember. Um, but it was Bowie's least favorite song on the Young Americans album, which is one of my favorite Bowie albums. And I'll agree, it's not the strongest song on there. I mean, it's a fun song, but... Um, and both those songs, Fame and Whatever Gets You Through the Night, were both written and recorded during John Lennon's famous Lost Weekend of 1973 to 1975. Rather long weekend. Um, you know, you think you take a long weekend, we get a Monday off. No, no, no. Lennon took a three-year weekend. Um, it was only Bowie's third top 40 hit in the United States. Um and, of course, he was all over the charts after that, but it kind of helped him break through on the pop charts. Number three, question number three. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, who is the second best-selling songwriter of the rock era? Right, The um, best-selling songwriter of the rock era is Paul McCartney. I kind of already mentioned that earlier. But who was the second most successful, best-selling, okay? Obviously, it was probably somebody who could write disco hits because the 70s sold an awful lot of records. And it was. It was Mr. Disco himself, Barry Gibb. Uh, most of those records, of course, that he sold were the Bee Gees, but he wrote plenty for his brother, Andy, uh, Barbara Streisand, right? Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Islands in the Stream. Did you know that was Barry Gibbs as well? And the title track for the hit musical movie, Grease, as performed by Frankie Valli. 
Uh, here's something interesting. And remind me to tell you about disco here in a second. <laughs> the movie Grease was released on June 16th, 1978, but this song was released on May 6th, 1978, a month before the movie, over a month before the movie, and the soundtrack itself, the whole album, was released a month before that. So they released the sound. That's how important the music was, right? I mean, obviously, it's a musical, but I just find that really interesting that they released this album, this double album, two months before the movie is even released. So people, and, and a month before the first single. Well, I don't know if that was the first single. Take that back. I'll have to look that up. Sorry about that. But anyway, but yeah, so that's kind of interesting. All that stuff, that was already, you know, those hits were already coming uh, by the time the movie even came out. And that's kind of brilliant marketing uh, on their part. So um, what I meant to, to point out is these are disco songs that were recorded by non-disco artists, right? Nobody thinks of John Lennon as a disco artist. Nobody thinks of David Bowie as a disco artist, uh, although you can dance to an awful lot of Bowie's stuff, but uh, but still, that's the point. Frankie Valley of the Four Seasons, right? Uh, Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, that stuff. You know, not a disco guy. So, 60s doo-wop, that's who we, how we think of him. Um, number four, our number four trivia question. What was the Rolling Stones' final number one hit in the United States? Their first was Satisfaction. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and I'm sure you're not surprised. Uh, it's, you know, probably their signature song. That's the one they're probably best known for. Uh, it's certainly in the top three. Um, but their final number one came uh, on the song released May 10th, 1978. It was their jaunt into disco hood. Uh, miss you. Um, at least one jaunt anyway. Some people also classify Emotional Rescue, uh, but I don't know that that's that disco-y. It's, it's certainly dancey or something like that. Anyway, um, the, uh, hold on. Oh, I think I had some other trivia to hit on some stuff. Anyway, we'll skip it. It's all good. Oh, Grease, real quick, sorry. Who played guitar in Grease? The song Grease? Peter Frampton. Of course, he was buddies with Barry Gibb because they were doing uh, Sgt. Pepper and everything like that. But that's kind of interesting. I never knew that till I was doing the research for this. But Miss You um, had Mel Collins, sax player uh, for Bad Company and a lot of other. I mean, just a studio guy. He was in uh, King Crimson for a while. And a guy named Sugar Blue playing harmonica. Sugar Blue, I think Mick Jagger discovered on the streets of New York. Uh, ended up playing on Will Willie Dixon's Hidden Charms album. Uh, and probably a lot of other blues cats. <laughs> uh, but Miss You was written uh, by Mick Jagger um, when he was kind of jamming around with Billy Preston with that funky keyboard and all that stuff. So that's kind of how that song came into being. Um, but it is a fun tune nonetheless. Number five. For what massive hit song was Rod Stewart accused of plagiarism? I don't know if you know this or not, but it was the great hit song, Do You Think I'm Sexy?, Written by Rod Stewart, Dwayne Hitchings, and my my, my man, <laughs> Carmine Apiece on drums uh, and songwriting credits. Um, the problem was it incorporated the melody of a song called Taj Mahal by Jorge Ben-Yor or something like that and had a, a string part uh, taken from Put Something Down on It by Bobby Womack. I believe it was the... Jorge guy uh, who sued him. I don't know if anything came out of the Bobby Womack um, 
ripoff. Um, but, you know, it was one of those things. I mean, Rod contends that he didn't do it on purpose, but he acknowledged the fact that, obviously, I mean, if you've heard this song, and I'll try to put it in, in the playlist as well if I can find it, um, you'll hear the, the similarity there. So he acknowledged it and donated all of his proceeds. And this is one of the biggest songs of all time, really. I mean, you still kind of hear this song in movies and everything like that, right? Um, and on your, on your 70s um, satellite stations and all those things. Uh, all Every dime, Rod Stewart's not made a dime off of that song, as far as I know. Um, it's all been donated to UNICEF, I believe. Uh, sorry, I don't have that written down either, but I believe that that was the case. Number six, what was Blondie's first top 40 appearance on the U.S. Billboard charts? Believe it or not, their first song to go to number one, or to hit the top 40, and this I don't know if this might not be surprising, was Heart of Glass, their disco song. Um, but I, But it's pretty cool that their first appearance on the top 40 went all the way to number one and ended up being possibly their biggest song of all time. I don't know. Rapture was also pretty big, tight as high. Um, it was produced by Mike Chapman, one of my favorite producers of all time. Came out in 1979. Um, it was actually one of the first songs that Blondie ever wrote as a band, but they couldn't get it to sound right. They tried it as a ballad. They tried it as a reggae tune, but it was called Once I Had a Love. And every line in it said, or every verse, had the line, Once I Had a Love, uh, it was a gas soon turned out, to be a pain in the, and I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on here or not, so I'm not going to say it, but it's the A word for your derriere. You know what I'm talking about there. Um, and she does say it one time in the song now, but originally every verse had that in there. And they decided to make it more radio friendly, to drop it, and that's how they came up with the line Heart of Glass. It actually had nothing to do with the song whatsoever, except it rhymed with gas and, uh, and was not dirty. Um, so that's your interesting little tidbit on Blondie. And finally, at number seven, not at number seven, it's not a countdown or a count up, uh, our number seven question was, which Kiss song was their bestseller worldwide? And at this point, I'm sure you already know what the answer is. Um, you know, the highest charting songs, uh, I, I, I know Beth was awful uh, high on there, Forever, right? Was that, was that a thing in the 80s or something like that? Um, but I Was Made for Loving You, a song that Paul Stanley says that he wrote uh, just to prove how easy it was to hit to write a hit disco song. Uh, he wrote that with uh, Vinny Poncia, the producer, um, who I think I need to do an entire podcast on this guy if you saw some of the stuff that he uh, wrote and co-wrote, as well as their other co-writer on the song, Desmond Child. This was his first collaboration with them, and he went on to do a lot of other songs with Kiss, and Aerosmith, and Bon Jovi, and Joan Jett. But uh, it was Kiss's um, bestseller worldwide. And Kiss definitely not seen as a disco band. Gene Simmons hated the song. Everybody kind of hated the song uh, in the band. I loved it. It was like probably my favorite Kiss song for like a long time. Um, anyway, so here we go. Uh, that was our tribute to disco, not disco, on July 12th, 2021, in honor of the 42nd anniversary of Disco Demolition Night. So yes, that was the day Disco died, and it did peter out soon afterwards. You had punk music coming on and all this other stuff, New Wave, which was the new brand of dance music. Um, 
But clearly, disco is not dead because here I am talking about it, and I know you've got uh, disco stations tuned in on your uh, your car satellite stations or whatever they call those things. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for tuning in to yet another Al Kendall's album sides. Don't forget to check us out on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes. Uh, all that stuff. Anywhere you get podcasts. And if it's not on your personal podcast thing platform, let me know. Let me get it on there for you. Um, I always uh, recommend people check us out on Spotify. Go to the Album Sides profile, and you'll get the podcast as well as the playlist. Uh, there's also a podcast page, Al Kendall's Album Sides podcast page on Spotify, and you can get just get the podcast. That's cool, too. But a lot of times we talk about a lot of music, and you're like, dude, I'd like to hear that song. Uh, so check it out. Uh, Al Kendall's Album Sides. Uh, until uh, next time, whenever I can find something else to ramble on about, this is Al Kendall. Keep it in the groove. Yes.